0: This is Max Goldberg with the Next Frontier podcast. Today I'm here with Lennon Rogers. Lennon, thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate it. I'm so excited to pick your brain a little bit about the makerspace world, your experience through MIT, JPL, and the space world. And just in general, pick your brain about how you've utilized resources and how you might have some suggestions for how young entrepreneurs, creators, and innovators can go really utilize some technology resources throughout their journey. That sounds good. So to kick it off, I'd love to just hear. So from a high level, how do you view your journey so far? When you describe Lennon-Rogers to people, how do you summarize or give a synopsis of your journey?
1: All right, I would never give the full story, but I'll do it. (laughs) I'll do it quickly. Um, So yeah, the background, grew up in Northern Illinois, then started out as an art student, then after the first year, started exploring more engineering and physics. So then got into engineering, went to University of Illinois, Graduated with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. Along the way, got into a lot of different internships um, at GE Research and, and JPL. And then I went to grad school, more JPL, a lot of traveling mixed in there. Um, and then I went out and, uh, skipping over some details of fellowships and abroad and other things, then I went out to JPL and um, worked there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then more traveling, back for the PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, more traveling mixed with living in, in Russia for a little bit and in uh, Switzerland as a researcher slash academic at universities there. Um, and then I went to MIT for a couple of years as a research scientist and then saw this position. I'm at UW-Madison. I've been here for two years, um, and it's kind of on the hands-on learning design and mm-hmm. prototyping mm-hmm. facilities within the College of Engineering. So mm-hmm. I oversee those spaces.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of them is the makerspace.
0: Yeah, so. and the makerspace has <clears> been such an powerful addition to campus and totally game-changing for, for lots of students. We had Taylor Waddell on a few yep, episodes yep, ago, saw that. and he had great things to say about yep. the space. Um So I'd love to ask you, so you, you transitioned from art to physics and engineering. Is that kind of where your design, design-oriented design approach to product development and just to to engineering and making in general came from?
1: Uh, probably the art was a mixture of just my background, um, my parents' Um, and then a little bit just to what I was interested in at the time mm-hmm. uh, definitely impacted then the hands-on learning being very applied. I mean, even when I was studying art, I was rebuilding motorcycle engines and other things. And that was actually kind of the indication that I probably should go into engineering because I you, know, you go away to college, you're now in a pool of all people that are studying something very similar to you. And when I looked to my left and looked to my right, it wasn't the same kind of thing. So most people were like, why are you working on motorcycle engines and motorcycles? And anyway, as I got into engineering, I could kind of see, okay, I'm much more identify with this type of work. So Cool. But yeah, it was, it was a mixture. It, uh, the art did then lead to some of the design building, but it was really kind of an odd case specific to my
0: upbringing and interest at the time. And where, where did the art come from? So you mentioned your background and your parents.
1: Yeah, it was just I, I was all into music. It was so music. I translated then a little bit into art and photography. And then when I went away to college, um, it, I knew it definitely wasn't music because that's a whole other level of intensity and passion. Um, but then I was like, oh, maybe it's art. And okay. but I quickly found out uh, mainly through those experiences, like I was mentioning with motorcycles and other things. Like actually, it's kind of engineering. <clears throat> and once I hit on that it was very clear. So I kind of ran with that for a good 10 years.
0: <laughs> just to round out that part of the narrative, what type of art were you doing? Was It It, it was really just general.
1: No, general art. It was general. So when you start out, it's all just general art classes. Okay. So it's like a little bit of everything. But I really didn't take that many art classes because I started taking them and I realized, I was like, hmm, I liked it up to a certain level. But again, I think that's what the unique thing about at a university, especially that freshman, sophomore year, you mm-hmm. really are put... Um, in a situation where you have to figure that out and so you really ask yourself those tough questions like okay this was fun but now can I do this for a career and with engineering it just was an infinite um, land of opportunities like once I stumbled on that I was like oh this is awesome there's just so many opportunities for me but an artist would say the same thing in art I think that's one way you know mm-hmm. you're getting into something you enjoy mm-hmm. it's kind of when you have that very infinite horizon sense so that's how it felt for engineering
0: Cool, and we're, we're, remind me where you did your undergrad? University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Illinois. Illinois. Okay, and did you continue yeah. there for your for your engineering degree? No,
1: yeah, um, I went to MIT for the masters, um, and that was a great experience. Um, and then I left, as, as mentioned, mm-hmm. and went. Mm-hmm. Did some fellowships abroad mm-hmm. for a while,
0: and then I went to JPL, Okay. where I had done co-ops and internships before. While you were at University of Illinois, right? Okay, yeah, cool. And where you do? So, what type of engineering did you do? You did mechanical engineering.
1: Did mechanical engineering? Yeah, that was JPL was a real, really a great turning point. Um, I was about to graduate in some ways. In some ways, at least, I had a path to graduate, a plan, um, and then I received an email um, one morning from. Um, dr mark swain who i owe a lot to and he says hey do you, do you want to come and work at a telescope in hawaii and i was like yes i oh, do cool. <laughs> so obviously i had to go through the interviewing process with mark i mean this is a long time wow. ago but he was a great mentor everything i learned so i was up at the summit of Mauna Kea for about eight seven seven eight months um lived in hawaii learned tons and what and type of projects did you work on while you were at JPL? The, uh, well, that one at the co-op was a, a large ground-based telescope. It's the Keck mm-hmm. telescope. And were you, were you doing physics and optics on that project? Yeah, it was optics. doing ground infrastructure? Uh, no, it was optics. It was measuring vibrations on the telescope. So okay. we went up and instrumented a lot of the mirrors, mm-hmm. um, had some modeling, and tried to estimate what machines we needed to focus on in terms of reducing vibrations. It was a super cool project. Um, And it was also neat in an interdisciplinary sense um, to work with a lot of physics and astronomy people. I was
0: one of the few engineers. Most of them were physicists or astronomers, specifically. Digging deeper into that for one second. So this, this I imagine, was kind of your first real industry project out of university? No, I I worked at GE Research for two
1: summers, Uh so I did some. But this was the first one where I spent a good chunk of time, seven months, and it was a real problem. I mean, we were up there. um, It was... MacGyver type, Indiana Jones mixed of adventure and bringing in engineering tools to try to solve these real problems on this billion dollar ish, whatever the cost is of that telescope. It was a huge instrument. I mean, the the telescope, each of the mirrors are ten meters, but the facility is you know as large
0: as this building that we're in now, which is you know tens of thousands of square feet. They're yeah. just huge. So how did you train yourself? Because I imagine you didn't cover so much of that optics and, and astrophysics in your engineering degree.
1: Uh, it was it was largely just vibration in di- dynamics, a lot yeah. of calculus, okay. a lot of spreadsheets and MATLAB, because and, I was still like junior senior ish age of mm-hmm. age, so I had had quite a few
0: engineering courses at that point. Okay, cool. And and reflecting back, so coming back to JPL. Were you a space cadet growing up? What kind of got you excited and inspired about space?
1: That's yeah. I think it was. I think what attracted me about JPL is just a level of excellence in some ways. I, that was probably more than anything. I mean, I, I did like space. I got into the telescope world through JPL, and that was like some way a segue into the space world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was really interested in aircraft engines. That's what I worked on at GE, and so it was all that aerospace. Field that I really was just interested in i don't i didn 't have a lot of experience in it i wasn 't a space cadet as a kid i, I didn 't have really any exposure. I never saw a rocket launch um, didn 't have any, any really even engineers in my life um, but it just seemed like the most complicated thing to work on the most uh, the highest level of excellence um, in general like the the standards were very high uh-huh. and it was very challenging so it was like probably just like the biggest challenge. Um, and it was very attractive. And similar to MIT, I think it was just like, I would have I gone anywhere. I just wanted to go to what seemed to be the best. Interesting. And were
0: you like that throughout your childhood? No, not necessarily. A, when did you develop that mindset? Like, I, I want to be at the top or work on the hardest Once job. I saw that infinite horizon
1: of engineering, uh-huh. I was just like, I want to try to go You know, as far as I can. In that. And it's, it's fun. I mean, it's fun working with those people. I mean, even at JPL and on the telescope, I mean, just it's the other people that you're working with. Again, kind of that level of excellence um, was just fun.
0: Interesting. So do you, have, do you have thoughts on, say, you have the opportunity to go work on the hardest challenge that you'll possibly be able to work on versus maybe working on challenges for, for, for people in the audience versus working on challenges that might be more more obtainable and they might have an easier time gaining the skills on do you have thoughts on that dichotomy? I mean, that I like those.
1: I like working on those problems that are questionable if they can be done. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of I'm skipping over a lot, but <clears throat> I was in aerospace world again. With that uncertainty comes a lot of patience and other mm-hmm. things. Um, I got when I went back for the PhD, it was more related to electric vehicles because I was living in Los Angeles. This is like 2007, mm. and. Uh, Electric mobility was just kind of getting started. I mean, I think uh, the Roadster was around, but it was kind of a niche Mm -hmm. field. And so I thought electric vehicles would be a good thing to work on. So I built my first motorcycle when I was working um, at JPL. It was at the Caltech shop, kind of similar to what we have, but very, very mini um, comparatively. Um, but anyway, that led to kind of this whole other set of challenges that were interesting, I think, with electric mobility. Okay. And I got in. It got into that
0: for the PhD. Um, and this was at MIT?
1: That was at MIT for the, for the PhD. The master's degree was all aerospace, so okay. I worked. In it. So why don't we dive into that a little bit? So yeah. what, what was your master's project at MIT? Yeah, so this is kind of the era of aerospace, which is super interesting, and that was um, called SPHERES. Some people may have heard about it, because it's been around for a while, um, and it generated many master's and, and PhD theses. Um, But I helped build the docking port that was on Spheres, which is a small soccer ball size uh, test bed environment spacecraft. But it's inside for inside the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did all. I worked with students, and we. I I was like the TA, and then I evolved it into an actual research project. And um, that ended up. They used it on the ground-based test bed for quite a few years, like a decade or something. Anyway, some, it was 2014. I think it launched from Kazakhstan up to the space station, uh-huh. but it took that long. You know, that's the pa- that's the patience part in aerospace. You have to be very patient.
0: So, long time horizons. Yeah, long time, long time horizons. horizons. <laughs> right, but it was it was neat, and that was a good project. Work. So this is kind of like a, a lab in a soccer ball. That floats right. around the ISS. Yes,
1: and they have done all kinds of things with spheres. It's a really interesting project. If if you want to look it up, it's
0: S P H E R E S. Kind of, it's it's an acronym. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes for yeah. the show. Yeah. Thanks for it. And was your master's thesis on any particular part of the spheres, or it, it yeah, it, it
1: was on it was
0: on a few different things. The higher the higher
1: question was asking about modularity in spacecraft. Mm-hmm. So can you build modular spacecraft? And so I did a, a lot of literature searching. I did a bunch of simulations mm-hmm. showing what, how much fuel would be needed if you, for example, wanted to assemble a ten meter uh, telescope in space. Um, so, if you want to read up on that, my thesis is available online. It's actually <laughs> it's a good read. Um, and that's all related to modularity of spacecraft. And then spheres was an example of a modular spacecraft. Okay. So I kind of used that as a, as a case study. And then the design of the docking port was one of the uh, key components to modular, modularity. Because if you have any type of modular spacecraft, you need to connect them somehow. So that's that interface. Mm-hmm. So through that interface, you need mechanical connectivity. You need data. You need Well, you could do wireless. But at the time, we were kind of looking at wired in some ways. And then uh, you need electrical connectivity and all this kind of stuff. So, And that was that docking port. So, But I, I looked through it from a higher level in terms of those um, general interfaces that you would need when you connect two modules together mm-hmm. or, or N modules. Um, but then I looked specifically at our design that we had done, and we made it and tested it and then used it. So it was both hardware and some mm-hmm. simulations and
0: Cool. So I think modularity is a really interesting concept. Would you be able to maybe give three or four benefits of why you would design a system to be modular rather than not being modular? This is like what
1: at least one chapter of the thesis is on. So I'll try to go back to 15-year-old memory. (laughs) Um, But the basic idea is it is is interesting and it is applicable more broadly. So not just even in in spacecraft design. But the basic trade-offs, and if I remember correctly, um, is you know modularity is really good in terms of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you can mass produce things, and in, 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 in terms of cost, it's a great thing. Um, the main trade-off is in terms of performance: mm-hmm. is that even those those interfaces that I mentioned, um, they uh, add weight, they add complexity, mm-hmm. and things like that. And then on top of that, you have to assemble it, mm-hmm. assemble it in space. So there, there's some complexity there. Um, but those are the main, like I said, we went into like, I talked about four or five different pros and cons mm-hmm. and kind of evaluated different designs. And there are some examples. NASA's done some modular uh, spacecraft. Um, but for the most part, most most spacecraft are very, the opposite of modular, which is integrated designs. Mm-hmm. And it's because performance is so important. The mm-hmm. economics, which is the main advantage of modularity, does not come into play as much. Mm-hmm. Um, they're mostly interested in performance. So they're willing to trade off some of the costs for performance. Um, But with commercialization of -hmm. space, other things, I mean, Mm -hmm. also with modularity comes standardization of Mm -hmm. components. So that's kind of cool. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, I want to take this component, this component. We kind of compared it to the laptop industry Mm -hmm. that started very modular um, with different type of uh, PCI boards that you'd Mm -hmm. put in. And then it kind of went towards integrated so, but it's TBD, you know, where the space industry is going to go. Probably mostly
0: integrated, uh, I think like what it is now. I think interesting what's happening with the CubeSat movement. Yeah, that's a platforming and yep. modularity that's yep. happening there. But, yep. I mean, mod- modularity, I've, I, I think you can, you can probably speak more to this. But even in manufacturing or when you're making yep. things, like you guys have done here, having modular 3D printer systems, modular fabrication systems. You have your laser cutter, which can really easily integrate with your 3D printing flow. With your with your CNC flow, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of those are related to even standard standardizations mm-hmm. in
1: general, I mm-hmm. think, would be good. Even if it's in an integrated design, mm-hmm. like a very um, performance focused design, like low weight, um, whatever you're trying to optimize around, mm-hmm. um, the, even these standardization mm-hmm. elements to it would be great. Like all. Thrusters for these certain size of we, we all kind of use the same dimensions and mm-hmm. has similar interfaces. I mean, th- there, I think there's still a lot of promise and there may be a lot of activity in that area. I haven't
0: been in it for a while, but cool. Yeah, that was a master's degree. Cool. So was, you, you finish your master's and then you go on to do a PhD. Is this immediately after? That's well, that after was you go to yeah. Show then <laughs> yeah. It's very confusing. <laughs> uh,
1: no, that was so uh, I don't think, and I don't think anyone has these pieces together besides me. Maybe my wife, but I don't think so. Um, so after JPL, I went. Um, you know, so, sorry, after the master's degree. I went and worked at JPL. Okay. With In between there, I went and, as I mentioned, did some fellowships just as part of the, I mean, I, I recommend it to all students, mm-hmm. like any transition that you have to go use it. Like I was gradua- graduating with my master's degree. I went to Germany for three months. Actually worked with Mark Swain again, the guy mm-hmm. that I worked with at Keck. Okay. And we worked on a project around telescopes in Germany just for three months. It was a, it was a three-month fellowship. And then I went for three months in India and taught um, in the Himalayas through MIT. It was a program that they had. Oh, that I, fun! Yeah, I taught at a university there, and then okay. then
0: I went to JPL. So, okay. And then after JPL, you went to your PhD. Right. Okay. That's so it. let's let's go into the Himalayas for yes. a That sounds like oh, a Oh, wow. Of okay. okay. Wow. Well, all right. So what was going on at the university in the Himalayas? Were you establishing it, a new program? Like no, you? it wasn't actually, but it was interesting to see it. I mean,
1: it, um, India is very focused on more anal- the, the analytical aspects of engineering, so. They did have a shop there. Um, at that point, I wasn't as hands-on as I am now. Mm-hmm. Even though I started out very hands-on, the in- engineering undergrad beat it completely out of me. <laughs> like, literally all of it out of me. <clears throat> that it took me until I was... So I went... Like, all that stuff I talked about... I know I'm jumping over the Himalayas here, but... It's okay. It actually was back in grad school. When I when I got back into this, It was Way working on spheres, that. like, I got hands-on again. And that was a liberating feeling. Because I thought grad school was like theory, 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 theory. I thought school was all, because that's what they do to you. Not now as much, but it was that way 15, 20 years ago. Um, They really beat it all out of me. And then, um, but it was really thanks to my advisor at MIT. And that's kind of why I went to MIT in a lot of ways, is that they seemed very hands-on to me. And it was true Mm -hmm. to its reputation in that sense. Um, is that I was like, I want to just be hands-on. I want to build things. I don't want to do any more. I love theory, but I want it always to be applied to something. Mm -hmm. And so even though I had worked on telescopes and done other things, um, it really... Um, engineering undergrad at the time, and I think it's still at risk of doing that, can beat out Mm -hmm. the desire that some students have to be hands-on.
0: So I'd love to have a a segment that into a separate section. But first, I really want to hear about the Himalayas. And what was going on yeah
1: there the wasn't a lot like yeah, that's what I was saying, kind of so nice. it, even though there there were some shops there India's not really known uh-huh. probably the – i 'm stereotyping here, and it 's way more complicated than this, but stereotypically engineers are engineers in India are known more for their analytical abilities, mm-hmm. so like finite element analysis, mm-hmm. a lot of the math, so they did have a shop there that wasn 't really their thing. So I was mainly teaching controls and dynamics sure. and, and helping them with their teaching pedagogy, like Got
0: it. more like about setting up labs and things like that, but not from the shop perspective. Well, I think it's really interesting, at least for the audience, too, because a lot of people finish their degree and like, what should I do next? Yeah. And your travel experience is really unique. And that UN. you went yeah. and you found opportunities all the time more professional development yeah. outside of the U S yeah,
1: all the time, every opportunity, every, and it's really these transitions. Cause you can't, if you have a job, like even a JPL, um, it's hard to start traveling. I mean, you only have so much vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad that I did that. Um, because now for different reasons, it's harder to travel. I have kids and married and things like that. So not that you can't travel, but you have the most opportunity to do that when you're mm-hmm. younger, you're not tied down in any way. you maybe just graduated, um, uh, or, or in the case like JPL, an opportunity knocks. Mm-hmm. I got an email from Mark Swain, mm-hmm. and I, I had the attitude, "Yep, let's do it." Let's go. Spend three months in Hawaii. Se- seven, seven, months in Hawaii. seven or eight. Seven was, months yeah. In Hawaii. yeah, Oh,
0: That's cool. But I mean, it's I- that
1: it's that willingness to always just go for it. At the trade-off, though, that like now I'm more interested in digging in. I think a little mm-hmm. deeper. But when you're younger, I think you know, just like, hey, get all those experiences, like you said, just eat untraditional experiences, traditional experiences, study abroad. Meet people like Mark Swain and others that are willing to mentor you. Give you I mean, later on, years later, Mark Swain uh, helped me out again and uh, opened up a door to go to Germany and mm-hmm. and do the that
0: fellowship that I mentioned. So, and do you have any 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 tips for if someone's looking to to go have an immersive travel experience for engineers or entrepreneurs who are looking to go immerse themselves in other other environments? that yes. they should look for in programming. I mean,
1: I've I had kind of two traveling experiences. One was the backpacker. Uh, totally unplugged from society traveling, which I did probably 50% of. Mm-hmm. Um, the other 50% is more like this mix of work, mm-hmm. which that's super cool. They're both very cool. And if you can have those both of those experiences, I think it's really neat. The backpacker um, unplugged from the world and just go to the peaks of the Himalayas kind and figure the meaning of life... Um, that one is more about yourself. I think mm-hmm. the the other one is just so much richer in some ways, though the, the first one's rich too. But you just meet people, you mm-hmm. get deep, like you meet people at the university, you, mm-hmm. you brush your teeth in the same place every day, you go there, you have your coffee with the people mm-hmm. every day, you get into more of a routine, mm-hmm. you really learn about their culture. So I think if you can have both of those experiences, it's, it's ideal.
0: Mm,
1: interesting. So my advice is just basically... Um, just look for opportunities. Mm-hmm. Always be willing to travel. If um, a lot of people are either tied down, they're, they're, which is fine too, but I, I tried to stay willing to go. Like if an opportunity knocks, just to take it and figure it out later. If it's my metric was always does it sound fun, and if it sounded fun,
0: just do it and go. You know, go full throttle at it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what metric I used. No it's cool. I mean travel is a very underutilized resource to inspire you, teach you new lessons,. Oh, yeah, especially when you're doing it in an immersive professional development way.
1: That stuff That's is cool. cool. Yeah, when you can land on those jobs, like I worked in, in um, I don't know if I talked about this piece earlier, but you, know, w- w- worked in Switzerland for a couple, like a year and a half or so. and there, again, that was the longest that I've ever lived in another country, and it just, it's just so great the depth. Mm-hmm. that you get from their culture the way that even the way that their educational system works i can go into more of that but that kind of is related to shops um, but just that all builds up my own database of world views you know on how things work how they could work you know different ways of doing
0: things are there so, any any standout lessons that you learn that you still think back to today when you're when you doing something in your operational role at the makerspace and your personal life, et cetera. You're like, Oh yeah, I'm so glad that I had that experience in the Himalayans or, or Oh the, yeah.
1: Uh, like I think that like a lot of the Himalayas were a little bit more the, 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 even though I was working there, um, a lot of the things that I learned there was probably, um, related to the, the, um, not even non-professionalism, but more like my personal, mm-hmm. like it was interesting to see some of that stuff. Do you have but, an example? Oh, you still want to go to the Himalayas? You no, I, just just the examples of the person. Oh, there's all kinds of things. Um, so it, there, when I got there, like with the Himalayas, like to summarize the adventure. Uh, so we were just—I was just at the, the foothills of the Himalayas, and then so kind of going north where the big big mountains and. Um, I realized pretty early on that traffic is kind of crazy, and, and so I decided to buy my own motorcycle. And so most of the time was in, that I spent in India outside of work was just motorcycling through the Himalayas. Cool. So it was, just, it was a sport. Cool. You know, it, was just like a cha- it was just a challenge. Yeah. And, and also just feeling self-reliant, You know, being out there in the middle of nowhere, um, it's, it's fun. I,
0: my sister was with me too, so that was really fun. So she lived there with me. Cool. And then professionally, is there any any major lessons that that you learned from your travels that you still think back to? I think it's just the people. You know, you start. I mean, I could just flip through all the different people from uh, you know every, maybe there, are, I don't
1: know how many different places that I've worked abroad, but a handful. And just the people, you just flip through their stories. Again, you've had dinner at their house. You've met their family. You've seen the way that they work, both professionally and just personally. You see a lot of their life. You meet their kids. <clears throat> What they eat, you know, all those things. I I always like to see all that stuff, Mm -hmm. just be a sponge for that. Are you still connected with a lot of those individuals? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, even I went back to India a second time um, through MIT, like, five years, five, six years later, and I met up with one of the same professors um,
0: that I work with. It's just, it's neat. Awesome. Travel as a resource. That's that's an an, an, um, amazing insight. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing. So, so transitioning a little bit. So PhD, you come to MIT, you get back for your PhD. And I imagine because you did you did electric motorcycle work for your PhD, maybe you Didn't I pl- didn't bit about plan
1: that. on necessarily doing that. Um, built the electric motorcycle at Caltech in the evening while I was working at JPL. Caltech has a little student shop. I'm assuming it's still there. And then um, I just started really getting interested in electric mobility more mm-hmm. broadly. And the timing was just really good. Um, so I, I found an advisor, uh, Dan Fry, who was just, again, a great mentor. You're mm-hmm. kind of catching the trend here, and I think mm-hmm. everyone already knows that. If you find these mentors, Major it's check. like, Jack. Uh, well, good ones. Yeah, and, and most, you know, like I said, I, I think there are a lot of good ones out there. Uh, Dan was a very open-minded guy, um, and so I got involved with the EV team, the MIT EV team. And so that kind of led. Electric team. Yeah, electric vehicle team. It was just really good timing. I mean, it was a time where... We were working on electric cars and motorcycles, and um, just all, all kind. It was just a very ripe time. 2009, 2010. Um, It was a time where we emailed Elon Musk, and he replied. Like it was just a totally different era of electric mobility. It was a time where um, I had built a motorcycle, and really just that first one. And we wanted to go race a motorcycle at the Isle of Man. And so, skipping over a lot of details. Um, I got connected to BMW in Munich and they invited me out to come because what, what's Isle of Man? Just oh, Isle of Man or is or an e- electric motorcycle race. It's been around for over a hundred years. Okay. It's yeah. And it's, it's, it's purely electric. No, no, sorry. It's a, a, it's a, it's a motorcycle race okay. that since 1907 has been gas in 2009, they added an electric class. Ah, okay. So there's a really good documentary about that. Uh, the electric, if it's called charged, if you're charged, interested. okay, charge, charge or we'll charge. put it in the show notes too. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, but, It was, like I said, back at MIT, it was just a very ripe time. And I was mentioning the Isle of Man. So as just another example, like I said, Elon Musk was replying to emails. Um, That's how odd it was. And we were even having conversations just related uh, to jump around here with Elon Musk about rapid charging. Because we were focused on rapid charging for many reasons, like fast charging lithium batteries. And is that what your PhD was on? No, not really. So yeah, I'll get, I'll get to that. Yeah, to that. but for so fast charging with batteries, and just to show again the the time it was in electric mobility, is that um, we were interested in rapid charging. We had emailed Elon uh, Musk because we were interested in some kind of partnership. I mean, we're young, dumb, and naive mm-hmm. uh, MIT students. I mean, well, we, yeah, we're, we we thought, and at the time, again, he had the Roadster. I think he was working uh-huh. on the Model S, but it was very early on, so he was just another inno- innovator uh-huh. out there. And we emailed a lot of like uh, Fisker was mm-hmm. came to our shop too. Mm-hmm. So there were many of those people at that time that were kind of coming into the shop. Um, but we had this conversation over email about rapid charging, and Elon replied and said he doesn't think the future something along the lines. And don't quote him on it, but it was something along the lines that we were trying to sell him on rapid charging. We're like, hey, we're doing this cool project. We were trying to charge a car in 11 minutes and build this huge battery pack um, with similar size cells. And he says, oh, well, he thinks this, the future is just big batteries, so you don't have to rapid charge. Fast-forwarding, we all know it's actually both of them <laughs> were right. You need big batteries and you need yeah. a fast charge. And I think you know he figured that out uh, pretty quickly with the supercharger network. Um, but I was just mentioning about that unique time is that even going back to BMW and the Isle of Man is that people were just willing to listen. Even that conversation with Elon Musk, it was like a time where... People were discussing mm-hmm. this new field of mm-hmm. electric vehicles, though it's not completely new, but it was it was coming back in vogue again. And so, again, BMW was like, "Hey, why don't you come? Let's tell us about what you think about electric motorcycles. What's the future?" So it was a really cool experience. So you to go got into. to pitch
0: BMW on building an electric motorcycle. Went
1: over to- there, went to Munich, um, and yeah, I got to. They let me tour all their facilities, and it was just amazing. Um, and then we just had a really good conversation about it about what the future of electric motorcycles is. And there was, you know, all the people, all the people that were interested were like the top people. And it was, but that door kind of closed shortly after that. Cause now BM- again, BMW, they started developing their own internal, team of people that knew what they're doing, but it was a very unique window is kind of what I'm saying is it, it opened up around 2009, 2010. Everyone was very much outward looking like, Hey, we don't know what the answer is. So they were very open to hear other people's ideas. So it was kind of neat to be part of that very rare, awesome. rare time. So, and I think there are other areas like that, um, with, I mean, autonomy might be one now it's maybe kind of matured at this point, but, and so on and so on. And I think it's fun as a student, you have no. You can take all the risks that, mm-hmm. in the world. So why not look for one of those areas mm-hmm. that it's kind of on the edge, that
0: the timing is quite good, mm-hmm. and try to jump on that. Well, there are a few, a few interesting lines of thought. There are number one, when you're working as a student and you have a .edu email address, yes, and you're working on an innovative project, you yeah. can actually reach out and reach the top people. In oh
1: the field yeah, yeah, they're much more
0: likely, and they're willing to willing to answer you, willing to have conversations. Yep. So we, Student organizations and student engineering. Oh yeah, critical. No, that's great. and
1: it's and beyond that I mean related to that in some ways, it's just it's working to do things that you couldn't do yourself. I mean, that's the fun thing about student orgs and even at, even approaching these kind of problems is that the, in no way any of the things that I've just described, I did by myself. I mean it was the first time I mean I built the first motorcycle by myself for the most part, um, but the Isle of Man motorcycle, the electric one that we built, um, and then later on, we went to, to Pike's Peak. For, it was a different race, but it was a team. You know, that's what, that you want to be working on. You know, my unsolicited advice here is you want to get these problems that are very unique. That, like I was mentioning with Elon and BMW, like people are open and asking interesting questions. The solutions are not clear. You want to be there. It's a fun area to be in. Um, but then also you want to be working on something that you just are not doing yourself in a closet because you're going to be very limited on what you can do by yourself. So Definitely. I think that was the Isle of Man race was the first time for me, even though I worked on Keck telescopes and other things, like those are huge monster projects. I'm talking about the ones that you have a handful of students, like you were mentioning, mm-hmm. student orgs. Um, yeah, I have a lot of respect for teams, and once you've experienced that, it. You, too, will respect them, most likely, if it's a functional team where you are way better than the individual pieces. It's yeah. like you see this magical resonance that happens, mm-hmm. and that's really cool. Hi, so do you have any advice for reaching that magical resonance? Um, I think if you're on a good topic, helps, for sure, and that attracts people. If you, um, if you have a topic that that kind of is all the things I just mentioned – then it's probably luck. It's a bit of luck, like a sports team. I mean, it's like how do you get on a good sports team? I mean, you could probably pick apart in the sense of if you're meeting people, you could try to hey, you you really know what you're talking about. Um, but I think a lot of it probably has to do with uh, just like even if you think of a rock band, right? I mean, they, they every once in a while you'll a guitar player meets a drummer meets. Um, a vocalist and so on and so on. And it and just, harmonica player. Some, whatever the magic <laughs> ingredients are, it just happens. And the same thing happens with engineering, uh-huh. but it doesn't happen all the time. Um, but I think a good metric is how functional it is. If it seems very dysfunctional, I would just, it's probably, it probably won't yield to much. I would just move on at yeah. a certain point, just be like, hey, it's just not working out. But I think if you kind of meet that, Magical band
0: chemistry in an engineering sense. I mean, you'll you'll know it. Cool. Pretty quickly. What are some of the engineering projects that you're excited about right now? Oh, like, I mean, well,
1: right now I'm a lot more into the administrative side of things. Um, I mean, I think that was mainly just to do the startup, but we do have some ideas to do more projects. I mean, I think autonomy is just going to revolutionize everything. Okay. Um, I was um, I was just at the Harley Davidson Museum in, in Milwaukee, and actually mm-hmm. I've been there multiple times because I'm an enthusiast, but it's interesting to see the evolution of vehicles and every once in a while there's a, a disruption and I think autonomy is just going to be like that. You're going to go to a museum 100 years from now and you'll have all these designs of vehicles and all of a sudden just everything starts shaking up and changing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited about autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of in short. And are you planning on doing like an autonomous car competition type thing? Um, well, I think from from me, my focus is is probably more on just helping other students with projects and so we have plans on doing... Possibly like an autonomous boat project um, of oh, some cool. sort. not that autonomous boats are the future, but just to give students an opportunity to have exposure to it. They can then run with it whatever way they want, but I'm less self-focused in terms of my own interests and just trying to find exciting projects for students they're interested, that they're interested in and to help them land a good job or a good startup company or meet the team, like bring people together. Maybe they meet this magical team through that process.
0: Cool. So. Cool. So, one last line of questioning about your your background. Mm-hmm. We'll get to some of the other things that you're working on right now. So, you go to this PhD at MIT. You're working in the electric vehicle space for your for your research. Right. How, a, a, a garage, a garage <laughs> working on on hacking, hacking together. Really, yeah. It was managed, more it fast was, charging. Yes. Things that don't explode. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, so, so how did you how did you Connect and network your way toward to MIT and to your research advisors, right. et cetera, Throughout that journey. Well, that was kind of interesting because I went there, and like a, this is two thousand
1: nine, two thousand ten. All the things I described, we were building, we were like building uh, lithium packs and fast chart building chargers. Things were blowing up in somewhat controlled way, um, and I just thought it was kind of a side hobby. I didn't actually anticipate that it would be my thesis work. So I was shopping around for a lot of different projects. I, it was a good time because I kind of had essentially not a fellowship, but my advisor, uh, if, as long as I TA'd and did a few other things, helped with this design center that I was part of, he was very um, supportive of, of kind of whatever I wanted to work on in some ways. Um, and that was what, uh, one of the awesome things about
0: him. Um, and how did you
1: connect with him? That was through when I was in at... Um, jpl i met him through an a former like an advisor of mine at mit from before got it because i was in aerospace before got it um and then when i went back it was in mechanical engineering
0: got it and 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 for people who might be looking to go to grad school yeah do you do you think that the connections helped you secure your your thesis right your, your... that's
1: a good so you're saying okay go, okay because a lot of students even here are in that mm-hmm. process now like okay got accepted to grad school um I mean, for me, I always just go through the network that I have, whatever network it is. Is it your grandma? Is it your uncle? Mm -hmm. Is it your dad's colleague? Is it your mom's colleague? Is it someone that you met at at church? Is it someone that you met at at a coffee shop? Whatever. So in the case of uh, MIT, going back to Hawaii, I vividly remember I'm having – I had dinner um, with uh, one one of the guys that I worked with there who had gone to MIT for his Ph.D., and he's like, what do you want to do? What's, what's, you know, i was like, I think I'm thinking of going to MIT. And he's like, you should look into Dave Miller in the space systems lab. So that was kind of my connection. It doesn't do you any good in mm-hmm. the sense, like, I can't, he doesn't help me get into MIT. Mm-hmm. But once I was in, mm-hmm. I then contacted Dave Miller and said, hey, I worked with a colleague of yours. And, um, and then he, because I, I tried to do good work at, at the telescope with this guy's name is Mark Colavita. I'm assuming he. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully, I think he gave a good recommendation, and then that was with Dave Miller, and I worked with Dave Miller. Um, and then, for the, so for the PhD, that network that I had at MIT, I knocked back on that door, and I had kept in contact with him. But I was like, "Hey," in this case, it was another advisor of mine named Warren Searing, who's in mechanical engineering. He's a professor, an amazing mentor. Again, another amazing one. And I said, "Hey, Warren, I have. The, I know this is crazy. I know I'm working in aerospace right now, but I want to work on electric vehicles." And I just built this motorcycle. I know it's rough, but I think there's some potential here, not for motorcycles necessarily, but for electric mobility. Um, and so he, he's, he connected me with Dan Fry, who ended up being my advisor. Amazing. So that's kind of how,
0: how it happened. Amazing. Back to the network. Yeah, network and mentorship. Yeah, yeah. Important. That's it. He summed it up. Awesome. Okay, cool. So So expanding. So why don't we take that lead? So how did you get to come to UW-Madison and start staffing and building this maker
1: community right okay so i'm just gonna couple details just in between uh very briefly so dan fry mentioned my advisor it was good timing because they were just starting up this new design center and part of that design center was a need for a fab lab maker space whatever you want to call it in this design center so i got on i got involved with that through my funding how it was kind of funded and i loved it um i like doing that kind of stuff going way back to the very childhood kind of thing like i mentioned um so I got into makerspace there. Then, as part of this collaboration, uh, they needed um, this is a design center was it was between MIT and Singapore. It's called International Design Center. Partnership. It was a partnership. Okay. Um, and you can put that as a link or It's an interesting. You know, it's, a, it's a whole in the notes. Yes, yeah, it's a whole university in Singapore that MIT was helping um, start. And so, part one of their needs was a makerspace. Oh, ah, okay. So Dan was said, "Hey, you set up this." makerspace here. It, I mean, it wasn't probably. called, yeah, it was like Fab Lab shop. I don't think they called it makerspace. Well, they, they didn't call it a makerspace. We called it um, more of like a Fab Lab. So I went to Singapore for a month and set up their first shops with another uh, colleague, student of mine. Um, and we went all over Singapore and I could go into details there, but it was interesting because they don't have a making culture. This is 2010. They didn't have a DIY culture. In fact, they, didn't, they don't have Home Depots. Really? In
0: 2010, they didn't?
1: No. They, they don't have Home Depots. And to get everything, I mean, now it might be different, but the, to get raw materials like electronics, Arduinos, aluminum, it was, it's much more um, market-based. So you have to know in Singapore where to go. It's not online. I mean, again, it's all changed probably now. So one of the things that we did, besides buy all the equipment and set up the space, is that we went and made a list of how do you get aluminum all the metals, all the electronics. So we went to all the different markets and doc, excuse me, documented it because that
0: was, even though that seems odd, it was like that's, that's really a important. limiting it's piece, really right, materials. Knowing what resources you have access to is you have to know what resources you have before you can utilize them. It's really important. Right. And so uh, later on, I'm jumping over now
1: many years after the PhD, I went to, to a similar opportunity. Mm-hmm. One of my men- uh, mentors, Warren Searing, who I've mentioned earlier he said, Hey, you're graduating. You interested in going to Russia? We need another, we need a maker space. (laughs) I'm like, I'm your guy. Okay. Um, so, uh, this time I had a little bit more in tow. I mean, I was married and had one son. Um, so we all moved to Russia just for three months. It was, that was the plan. And it was, it's a, it's a university outside of Moscow. It's, um, you know, within the city, right outside the city. And so that was that one. Um, all that to say, that's what kind of got me with U, into UW in niche. some ways, is that I had this niche side set of experiences related to dis- these facilities. Um, and I went back to MIT after Russia and Singapore and ran the shop that I had created. I think I mentioned that earlier. So I had done that for two years. This job opened up. I'm from the Midwest. I have two kids now. Um, it's less about necessarily probably um, the technical engineering Problems for me, and more about like impact education, facilitating innovation. Facilitating innovation—that's a good, good summary of it. So this was a perfect job in a lot of ways. It was closer to home, and it was it was a very rare alignment where Granger, the Granger Foundation, had given money. Mm -hmm. Um, I could tell through the interviewing process that there was support from a very high level. Mm -hmm. Those are two key ingredients for success. (laughs) If you don't have high-level support and and or you don't have money, it's very tough. Um and so it was just really good timing. So that's where two years ago that's when I came to UW and that's when I met you, you guys and mm-hmm. others and we uh really collectively created this space which is which is the you know the maker space, what we call the makerspace.
0: Cool. So I have a few rapid fire questions to All write right. that down. Number one, how did you hear about the the opportunity? Uh, Just, I think it was just an Indeed or some some job. Okay, yeah, you're just looking to move back after.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, how did I actually? It was something like that. Like I think I I think I had an ongoing thing for email thread or something. University of Wisconsin, University of Illinois, University of Michigan, and other. I would we would we would have considered all other places, but as part of that was the the Midwest. Mm. You know, that's specific to my situation, but. these type of places do not pop up that often. I mean, mm-hmm. every big school mm-hmm. probably has one, but, again, sometimes there are different flavors. Yeah, this how, is a, how often do you get to build it from scratch at a university like Wisconsin? Right. It was a good, it was a good opportunity. Cool. Yeah. So, so and I was used to doing things somewhat from scratch. This was actually the most horsepower that I've ever been given really? because the other ones were much more early on. This was like, we already, because the other ones, like even in Singapore and in Russia and even MIT, they were much more like initial, like pioneer, Mm -hmm. like we're going into Singapore. We're not sure how much we want to invest in the shop. And then it ended up being that we kind of laid that foundation and it Mm -hmm. it really expanded afterwards in Mm -hmm. a significant way. But this one was the one like, hey, we we have a a, a large gift, Mm -hmm. um, full throttle, go, what can you do? What can you do? (laughs)
0: Uh, You're... uh, give us the vision Mm -hmm. where should we head so it was was a very unique opportunity and then how much money did they give you to start out with from the Granger Foundation and this Uh, is technically the Granger Institute
1: yeah I don't I mean I don't know I mean okay I can say what's because I there's a lot of different money pots but the overall gift which is public information is that there was like 22 million dollars I think but that didn't all Mm -hmm. that was multiple initiatives but we were part of part Mm -hmm. of that the exact dollar amount for us doesn't really matter but it's like a multi-million dollars You know, kind of effort I mean it was a serious investment, very much thanks to the Granger Foundation and thanks to the, the Dean and others that have been really supportive. So.
0: And just to give context, because the next thing that I, I'd love to do is break down what does it actually take to, to start a makerspace mm-hmm. just to, to give context, how much of that have you spent if you're able to share to get this makerspace off the ground to the point where it is today, two years later after opening?
1: How much did it cost? Like in terms of equipment, I think in terms of equipment we have some. Like this is just machines. It's Mm -hmm. like roughly a million dollars worth of stuff. I mean, even if you went to our website, you could probably add it Mm -hmm. up. You know, it's on that order. But the actually the more expensive part is the building upgrade, Uh, (laughs) the upgrades, and all the staffing. And we have a we have a lean staff here. But I I also help oversee the machine shop, which has more staff. But you know, this, as you were part of, is is a student run facility. Mm So it's pretty lean on the full-time staff. But student staff get paid. It still costs. Mm-hmm. So those are actually the more expensive operational, the operational costs.
0: Mm-hmm. And how many people. students do you need to, or how many people do you need to operate a staff 24 hours a day? I mean, I don't... Makerspace staff 24 hours right.
1: a Right. I mean, we haven't necessarily reached steady state, but right now we have three student staff um, that are here at any one time while we're open. But we're also going that's more mostly undergrads. We're moving a little bit more towards a hybrid where we have some grad students. Um, and then Carl is a shop manager and he he really runs it. Now I, I'm actually I'm not that involved because mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to move mm-hmm. to these other things like we even talked about projects and, and mm-hmm. we're, master's crea- we're creating a master's so we're degree and other and things. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Cool. So so that's the next rapid fire question. And then the other rapid fire question is what do you think the most important piece of mindset besides for high level influence and, and, and capital for someone like yourself who's looking to go upstart a makerspace, what do you think the most important mind, mindset or framework or or maybe even end goal that they could have to be successful in building this, this kind of innovation engine that is a makerspace?
1: Well, I would abstract it maybe one level up just because makerspaces are so rare. It's kind of a okay. niche. But I mean, I know what you're saying. I think I could answer it in kind of one level up, which is just... I think it kind of goes back to even the isle of the Isle of Man race and other things it 's like a t- it 's like what everyone everyone that I think most people know this, mm-hmm. but it 's really true is a team mm-hmm. so i mean that 's I think the most important thing um, is just building up the team i mean in our case it's it 's got a lot of energy because it has a lot of students, but there's st- there 's still a team um, and so y- you were part of this I think you came up pretty early on mm-hmm. you know there were other students and just listening to them, getting them involved. Um, but that goes like i said that applies to a team of enge- young engineers or old engineers or or, or artists or whomever you're you're uh, working with um so i think that's kind of the the key thing is just the team cuz i want that magic i mean just like what we talked about res- hitting resonance on a team you want that same thing in this kind of space and i love it when i go around here and just see things happening and it's just them it's the fruit of their work, not mm-hmm. me. I mean, it's other people doing it. They're getting enjoyment out of it. Um, and really, I don't take the credit in any way because it's just kind of setting up that team
0: and getting that resonance, um, I think, is, is kind of key. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So what's, a, what's the ideal team, prof, team member profile that you're looking for? Um, I, th- I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, no, but I
1: see what you're saying. I mean, I think the profile depends on the mission. And um, I think to me what I enjoy is just just talent. Like when you see, when I love, w- w- so even like w- with Carl, who's a shop manager here, I mean, just seeing what his talents are and trying to see how it lines up. I mean, I kind of already knew the persona in some ways of what was needed and then trying to find that. At the mm-hmm. same time, trying to understand what their strengths are and fill in where they're, don't push them to, Deeply into an, into an area they don't want to get into, so I think I think looking for strengths, and I think I did this as a TA, as in, in teaching, and, and, and then even later on as an actual teacher, or professor, and, and as a project manager and this kind of thing is just looking for strengths of people and trying to foster that and fill in gaps, move people around, you know, challenge them but don't push them, don't grind them down too much. Mm-hmm. So it's all. The, I mean, it, it seems kind of cliche and simple, but just the team, you it's know, having
0: having the team. So not to bifurcate the conversation into mm-hmm. two, two different segments. So I think there's two lines of thinking that are really valuable. Number one is how can people leverage this this makerspace innovation facility that you've created, whether it be at Wisconsin and Singapore, Russia, elsewhere in the country, mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a individual sense, how can they use it to kind of accelerate their ideas, bring their visions to reality? And then, then the second bifurcation is... How can, say, an entrepreneur who's building a company or more established companies and CEOs at more established companies incorporate this makerspace culture and the maker culture and the innovation engine into their their companies and their environments? So maybe we'll start with the first, and, and I'll ask, what do you think people can be doing at makerspaces? How do you think they're most efficiently used, et cetera?
1: I mean, I think the the main thing, because like I said, they didn't really exist in their current form when I was going through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the community is one. Mm-hmm. So meeting those people, you kind of talked about that. I mean, it's almost like hanging out in a place where people are just jamming on instruments all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, that is a necessary but not sufficient condition in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be around people that are pushing in the same. Maybe it's all in different directions, but eventually you'll find a vector kind of heading in that direction you're going. And I think that these kind of spaces can do that. Um, and that's kind of like the garage, you know, in quotes. I mean, it was a garage. But the garage I hung out at MIT was. It was like that. It was a, it was a place where I could meet other people um, and, and find that team that I said, which was key. Um, so then the other thing, which is super critical is just the access to tools, which is again, kind of an obvious thing, but it's not a given. Mm -hmm. And when you leave the university, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You might even be able to find a team maybe, but that's tough. But on top of that, all the tools. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the second thing is just access to tools, training, um, learning best practice. Um, very cheap. You know, you get easy access to it at a very subsidized price. (laughs) You'll never get that again. Um, so that's why being a student, it's a good time to do, be an
0: entrepreneur, in my opinion, take those kind of risks. And what, what if you got a rapid fire from the tools that you have in the makerspace here 3D printing, virtual yep. reality, high, high performance computing, CNC, et cetera, can you just rapid fire some applications for these different tools that you've seen students use? Uh, I mean
1: the things that they've built. Yeah, the things that they built. We, I mean, I think the most interesting, like some of the more interesting ones are like the healthcare ones. Um, we've had people from the med school come over. We've had professors come over from the vet school and create prosthetics for animals. And um, I think it's kind of in that. I think that the things that are actually very engineered um, are cool where you actually put a lot of time into the analysis and the design and then boop you make it. The digital is quite fast in some ways, relatively speaking. But the, a lot of time spent into the into the actual design work and then you just rapid prototype it. So that's kinda and like I said, the the, the medical applications have been really interesting. We have a lot of student orgs come through here
0: mm-hmm.
1: and make things for different vehicles. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of design, just a lot of different design projects come through mm-hmm.
0: from all the engineering um, departments. What's one thing that you personally would love to make that you haven't had the opportunity to make yet using this this space? It's probably
1: those autonomous, autonomous <laughs> topics. Autonomous yeah, I just topics. love it. Autonomy to me is just like electric. I mean, I'm even a little late, not late in the game because I worked on an autonomous tractor in Switzerland, um, but I've had a gap, and I think it's just impre- it's it's such a neat topic that I, I really
0: want to dig into that more. Cool. Cool. So then the second part of the bifurcation is if you wanted to establish a makerspace in your company, for instance, for example, right. how would you go about doing that? So maybe we'll start back when you're making your first makerspace. How did you even frame? I know you mentioned that you compiled a list of resources that people could access, but how did you even frame getting, getting this type of innovation engine off the ground? Yeah, there's probably a couple
1: different ways you can do it. So you're saying like a company X of various size exactly. and you, and, and we, and I've heard these kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, he says you talked to Taylor mm-hmm. um, recently, and he's doing that kind of thing at NASA. With, at NASA. You know, trying to bring some of these elements into a corporate or some research environment. Um, I mean, I think that part of it is is probably a longer term strategy, which is just to hire people of that mindset, because mm-hmm. it's it is a bit of a mindset that you have to have, because not every person is a tinker, um, and I think you can become more of one, but you could also self select. You could select people Mm -hmm. that are looking for that, but probably slightly before that, you need to create the vision in some element of facilities, but it may take some time to build it up. I mean, you just throw facilities out there and it won't just Mm -hmm. be filled Mm -hmm. because some people won't know how to use it. And and just to give an example, like even here, you create this facility, well, you need some programs, you need other things like the master's degree that we're creating um, that we've alluded to. Uh, you need to create these programs to fill it in. And I think same kind of thing in a corporate or startup or research environment. Start hiring people that are interested in that, but at the same time, or maybe slightly before, just create a slight vision for what it could look like. That might be a small room that you convert. It could be like a serious investment that you've made um, to, to buy the equipment. But it's also maybe to have some programs that are associated with it. It could be like some like at JPL, they used to have... Um, I think they called it X team or something like team X, um, where you, they actually had you come in and do simulations and other things. So it was part of your job was to go in and s- simulate various things. In this case, it was all virtually using simulations, but you could have a similar kind of set of activities mm-hmm. for prototyping and other things that would help the employers, um, uh, get their, get their team kind
0: of, out know, that mindset okay and if and if you wanted to incorporate these training programs, and then from here we can maybe transition into some of the training programs that you've established at the university mm-hmm. if, if the company they built the makerspace they are hiring the people who have this maker mindset, but then they want to have continuing education within their company what what type of educational initiatives would you implement so if I'm inside a company mm-hmm. and then we all the things that we just
1: talked about mm-hmm. like okay that's happening you have mm-hmm. money you're going to be starting to select mm-hmm. people that are kind of interested in it, mm-hmm. recruit people um there, I mean, there have been other examples. I would say, like, maybe an extreme case is GE mm-hmm. uh, with their Six Sigma initiative. I mean, you could have initiatives, and part of that, like with Six Sigma, is that they had a merit-based system where you mm-hmm. can get promoted. So you could create a similar kind of system um, by which there's training. They had training for, like... Black belt, green belt, whatever—all the different belts were for GE.
0: G. I should have Do they known. They have that. like physical belts that they. Were I don't think so, at? but it was kind.
1: of, it, You could look it up. I mean, it was a thing of the late '90s, um, in early 2000s. So that's when I worked at GE. So it's a little dated. What belt were you? Oh, probably no belt. I mean, this was like for their full-time staff. So I was okay. just an intern. So I was White I was belt. introduced to the yeah I was like a <laughs> an invisible belt, but I was introduced to their corporate culture, and part of that was this, and so I think that companies now could do something very similar. Okay. You know, more design, and they they have, I mean, design thinking, which comes with prototyping, teamwork. Methodology design thinking. All this kind of thing, bringing design methods into your organization. And like I said, there have been, IBM is a great example, they're doing that. Um, So there, and there are a lot of others, Um, GE is doing it, Uh, maybe, you know, of different scales, different places, but... Um so they have like I'm saying is that you have the facilities, you're recruiting people, but then you also create a culture around it. You create programs, a merit based system, um, you bring people in from the outside. These are all things again that, that that I've seen that at IBM. They have actually IBM I've actually seen the guy's talk that did that one and he's he did not that i intended to copy it but i think he pretty much if i he did all those things like they started recruiting they they hired like a thousand designers do you remember
0: his name so maybe we can put that to No I don't, I don't
1: but if you do a, if you do a search um, IBM design thinking okay. or design i mean it's just a, a recent talk he, yeah it's okay. a huge huge initiative uh, that's probably pretty much in full fruition at this point um, but they had this goal i mean IBM was not thought of as like a yeah a modern <laughs> company
0: Although and they, they just, run most of the modern world. They do. Well, that's what I'm saying. I
1: mean, they, but I think f- from a corporate culture perspective, they just use design yeah. as a real pivot for them. Yeah. You know, Not in every way because it's a huge company, but you know, they had an impact on their, their organization for sure. But that's like
0: an extreme case. I think all the way down to a small startup company, you could do the same kind of thing. So what are some of the, the resources that you've read? Or there, Is there a book on design thinking that you like particularly well? Um I wouldn't call myself an expert in design thinking like I I like to work with
1: people that are I, um I have taken uh, the the all I took all most of all the design courses at MIT and ITA um one of them and it was called product design and development um but that's mainly an engineers view I would say I mean Steve Eppinger teaches that class does a great job he wrote the textbook on it um and I worked with him a lot and I actually like so I really relate to to that and that textbook but that's not traditional Stanford model of it just you know mildly different i would say that the the what i was brought up in which is more about risk mitigation which again design thinking can be thought of as risk mitigation but as an engineer i think about design through the risk mitigation process um, so like I said I think traditional design think thinkers I like to work with them here it's in the school of human ecology they they tr- they work in that area Do they have a good design thinking course They're developing or... it yeah and and we've co-taught courses last summer we uh, co-taught one uh, and it was it's just great it's like bringing those type of thinkers and, and in and an engineer that understands it and maybe even practices it in some way but I feel like my strengths are more on the prototyping and uh, technical feasibility side, though I'm very comfortable working in an interdisciplinary environment where all three, technical feasibility, financial viability, um, and design, feas- uh, desirability, those are kind of the three things, part of the VIN diagrams. Like, I like working at that intersection, but I'm probably more the circle to do with uh, technical feasibility. You know, that's what
0: I love. Got it. Cool. And, and maybe now we can jump into some of the initiatives that are more specific that you've started and you've been working on. Maybe you could take us through the intro to engineering class that you've started. Yep. All the way through the masters. I program. mean,
1: to give it a broader context. I mean, when I when I came in, one of the first slides that I showed, which has been kind of what we've been working off of, is this arrow that is basically an academic pathway. It's a, imagine a PowerPoint slide, and you have an arrow that starts in the lower left hand corner and goes to the upper right hand corner, and it, all it says is interdisciplinary design uh, and maybe innovation or something like that. And along that arrow, all I want to do is a student, even like you or someone else. You know, imagine you going back your freshman year. And just provide a pathway that you're just like, all the things we just talked about, Mm -hmm. making and innovation and stuff like that. You have a home. You have like, okay, I see where I fit into this. It's not just a generic mechanical engineering, which is great. That's what I am. But it's a little bit more specific to that type of person that we're talking about um, that's interested in these other things that are not often historically at a university. So we're trying to create this academic pathway. It starts with the freshman design. That's in the lower left-hand corner, and that's the freshman design course. It goes through supporting um, a lot of the student orgs, the clubs and teams. It goes with uh, collaborating with School of Human Ecology and others on these certificate programs, which are like minor degrees. What certificate programs? Well, so he's uh, making one on design thinking. It's called something along those lines. And so that's coming out pretty soon. Um, so we're supporting that, trying to add the the hands-on and even encouraging students to, to do that one. Um, and then uh, kind of skipping over some of it, I think the one that we spent the most time on is the very end of the arrow, which is the end of the academic path, in my opinion, is the master's degree. I don't think students of this variety are typically looking for a PhD. I mean, I was kind of a rare hybrid case. I think most students that are interested in all the things we talked about, really they need a, a um, just a master's degree. And I think what, in my opinion, what they need is they, uh, is they need breadth and not depth. So, cause traditionally master's degrees are about depth and that's what I went into. I went into a master's degree that says, great, you're ready. You did all this stuff in engineering. Let's dig deep into one topic. And that's what I did. This master's degree that we're starting is, is largely about breadth and not about depth. Um, And so it's very interdisciplinary. It has five schools or colleges. It's the uh, College of Engineering, School of Human Ecology, um, the Business School, iSchool, and the Art Department. What's the iSchool? Information School. Okay. Yeah. Is that with the new American Family Uh, No, it's my my understanding. I mean, I know how I've interfaced with them, but more broadly, I think that their mission is like uh, information sciences. There might be some origins in library science, but it's kind of that meets computer science cool they work a lot with computer science A lot of data science yeah i is information i think so Great. information i school information school cool yeah like data science but applied in some ways in certain areas and when will that master's program be available it we are still going through the approval though we've made it through like four or five different uh, approval checkpoints um the final one it will be hopefully approved this july starting in to be uh to begin in the summer of 2020 so a year from now is the cool. is the goal Cool. And what types of students are you looking for for a program like that? Um, it's very unique in the sense that we—it's—it's it's a low barrier in terms of we don't—not low barrier, but like you don't have to be in engineering, is what I'm saying, and that's kind of a snooty engineering statement there. But uh, it's interdisciplinary, so there's—we're not looking really for any one particular mix, but or person, but it's kind of going back to that team resonance. Is I think our job. Um, is to create this cohort of students that's quite magical. And I was involved with this. I um, helped create a master's degree at MIT that was very similar uh, with Matt Cressy, who's the director of the, the program there. It's called Integrated Design and Management. And you did this while you were doing your PhD? Right, and afterwards. Okay. Yeah, and I taught in that uh, in, in that program, and and that was really neat to be part of that. Um, and Matt has done a great job, and he's really created something special. And I think you know that's kind of the opportunity here in some ways is he puts a lot of time into that cohort of students, and I think we'll do the same thing. So we'll receive all these applications, and our general goal is to have about one-third engineers, one-third from business, marketing background, and then one-third from the arts, the humanities, social sciences, stuff like that. Okay. So back to that program at MIT. Yeah. So you built that from the ground up, and you're... Uh, yeah, well, I was one of the... Yeah, there were a few... Um, there were a lot of people involved, but I was definitely one of the the key people um that helped create that program and I taught in it and I was like an official part of the team mm-hmm. for the first two, the two years that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so and yeah, I taught, really. I taught more of the engineering, like the electronics and other things. Cause the, the pieces there are business design and engineering and it's at a big engineering school, MIT. So, uh, they hired in Matt Cressy who he's from RISD Rhode Island school of design. And I'd worked with Matt actually quite a bit. Um, beforehand and then um, there were a couple faculty from engineering the names will sound familiar Warren Searing who was a good mentor of mine I mentioned him before (laughs) and Steve Eppinger who I mentioned before also a good mentor of mine Um, and so that was kind of the team there was Dan Fry there were other people Um, Maria Yang many many other faculty and I was you know part of that team Um, but that's been a very successful program you could you could link that one too if if, yeah, we we'll, if this program we'll doesn't work out i highly endorse we'll that. i highly endorse that program too it's, a, <laughs> it's the difference is that one's a two-year and they're mainly focused on entrepreneurship and so they matt and others on the team really want uh he values he values students going through the program and then starting their own company and having a really big impact um on the world so that's it's a very small cohort but he really you know focuses on that entrepreneurship piece
0: awesome Cool. So we've we've covered we've covered your your academic academia, your travel experience, mm-hmm. your Isle of Man electric vehicle experience, your makerspace acumen, and your innovation acumen. Uh, and now we've covered some of the programs that you're, you're implementing right. here at UW. Is there anything else that you you think that would be really valuable for students or graduates who might be en- entering the design and innovation and entrepreneurial workforce? To, to know or other experience that you've had that you think would be valuable to share.
1: I think the only thing I would say, and I've said this as even some of the students around here, is that it was interesting for me is that when I was going through the same undergrad and even into grad school, it just it's a totally different landscape and different set of opportunities now. like as I kind of described, I jumped on um, every opportunity that seemed of interest in, in the fun metric that I mentioned with a commitment of, of high quality work and dedication. Um, but I think if I were to go back in time, or like if I were to be now your age or some of the students' age, I would totally do the entrepreneurship thing. I mean, that is like the wagon I would jump on for sure. It just wasn't that common when I was of that age. And what was common were the things more like I mentioned, like working at research facilities, mm-hmm. at least for me, that through my lens, that was kind of the thing. So I would just say, translate everything I just said in like, I would think, you know, it led my stuff led to a lot of adventures and, and good times, which I'm uh, happy with. And it was fun for, it was fun. I think there's a whole suite of opportunities that just translate all over. Largely, I think to the entrepreneurship, I would never go to the corporate world now. I mean, not that it was bad, but just like, wow, I would totally try to find a team of people and have a big impact on the world. Take a risk for five, 10 years, um, and and give that a try. So that's kind of my basic advice is that it's just a really good time for students to take those risks. And even though I didn't necessarily do that entrepreneurship route, I think that was just a little bit of the times of like what was going on. Um, Fast forward, it's just becoming more and more. It just seems exciting for students to do that. And so I think even part of these spaces is that I just want to help enable them maybe alleviate some of their fears that they don't have to live a traditional life um, and then just provide them access to the tools, the community, the things, things that I talked about before in this space.
0: Beautiful. To end, I'd love to ask you two questions. So the first is if you were to start a company right now, based on what you're passionate about outside of the university, if this, if this role, it was a complete success and you were ready to move on to the next project, not saying that you're going to move on to the next project, but mm-hmm. what, what would that company be? What would that initiative look like? So what would be a startup company? Startup, other other initiative, etc. Um, I think it's a good question. If I had a gr- if I had a,
1: gr- a perfect idea for what it would be, I'd probably be <laughs> working on it now. But I definitely think about this, and I think one of the one of the many things that I'm super interested in that I do actually work on and kind of on the side is just mobility. mobility, just like low car lower carbon mobility. Kind of going back to the, my initial no, it's, pa- it's passion. passion. Yeah, I just is, I still love it, and I would do whatever: bicycles, electric cars. Anything that I could do in that area, I think that's probably
0: what I'd be interested in. Cool. And to to conclude, building on that, if someone gave you a billion dollars to go build whatever initiative you wanted to go build, uh, you can't you can't invest it and you can't keep it, how would you go about deploying that capital? Like which topic or literally what would I... How, as low level as you'd like
1: to get. I mean, I think in general, like I said, I mean, just to go off that mobility topic, I, I think I'm super passionate about that. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I don't know exactly what specific area I would work on in that, um, in mobility. I mean, like I said, I've had some of my own past projects, and I tend to gravitate more towards um, small urban vehicles, though so I don't necessarily know if that's the billion-dollar uh, startup company I would work on. Um, but I think it's, like I said before, I would just focus on, um, the t- early on team and then the prototype, you know, getting, I'm a big advocate of prototypes. Prototypes go such a long ways. There's so many people out there and no offense against them, but they have great vision and they have great ideas. But until you have a prototype, I just, I just think the engineer in me just has less respect than what's potential. And I think that as an engineer, you're given all the tools you need to make a prototype so just make a prototype (laughs) come to this space make a prototype Um, and so that's probably what I would focus on it's just a really awesome prototype that kind of irons out it it not only presents the vision but also demonstrates the strengths of the team it shows that you've been able to collect a team that can perform which is not a given Um, and then it also reduces some of the the technical risks like you demonstrated some of the technical risk so
0: cool that's how I do cool Prototyping prototyping is super important yeah, lots of amazing lessons, Lennon. Thank yep. you so much for your time. Uh, any any concluding words or where can the audience reach you? Uh,
1: you can yeah. check out yeah you can check out the makerspace if you just probably Google UW makerspace. Um, currently, I'll put a link to yeah my profile's down there, um, and you can search my name. I'm on LinkedIn. Feel cool. free to reach out. Cool. Well, thank you so
0: much. No really problem. Appreciate it. Very grateful for your time. It was great talking to you. Awesome. Thank you again. Yep. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. It's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.